The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Answer that question glibly or quickly. I had a a beautiful young woman say to me this morning, 
as I met her for counseling. She said, anyone who doubts their salvation, anyone who questions whether they're saved or not, then they probably are, are not saved. I held up my hand. I said, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Anyone who does not question their salvation is certainly not saved. If you have absolute assurance that you're saved and on your way to heaven, it's probably a very good sign that you are not saved and you are not on your way to heaven. Why do I say that? Because the opinions of men don't save you. I've had men say to me, Pastor, you're the most godly man I know. How could you question whether you're saved? Whether I'm godly or not is not the question. It doesn't matter what people think about me. It matters what Jesus Christ thinks about me. He's the Savior. Whether you're saved or lost is going to depend on Jesus, not on what you think and not on what you believe. I am determined to make my way through this world to salvation, to eternity with Jesus. That is my chief goal in life. It is that to which I have dedicated my time and my energy, my study. And so I come not to disturb you, but I come with the belief that Jesus loves you and that he's going to do everything in his power to break the deception of the devil and to make you righteous in reality so that you are a fit candidate for heaven above. Will you meet me in the morning? Or will you be cast out? Where will you spend eternity? Some are deeply offended by my preaching because they say, when I listen to him preach, I have a question about whether I'm saved or not, and I'm not willing to examine that. Or they'll say, when I listen to Pastor Ray, it sounds like nobody's going to be saved. So I'm not going to listen to him anymore. I understand. I'm not offended. 
It is for each one of us to settle the question once and for all, for eternity. Where will we spend that eternity and with whom will we spend it? We all have an eternity ahead of us. But where will that eternity be for you? And if you just cast aside that question and say, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven, then you're probably, in fact, not on your way to heaven at all. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, Jesus says, enter through the the suffering affliction gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small or groaning is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. If you listen to the modern church, everybody's on their way to heaven. Funeral after funeral, everybody's preached into heaven. That's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that only a few will find the narrow path and be willing to follow it. Almost all of today's churches, with their fine edifices, have been built on the Broadway. And their teachings encourage the Broadway. That's why Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. And always the fruit spoken of is righteousness. If they lack righteousness, they don't have any good fruit. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. Let me make it simple. Bad trees bear unrighteousness, godlessness, sin. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I want you to notice, it does not say, but only he who has the imputed righteousness will enter into heaven. Please hear me. No person who claims imputed righteousness and does not live a righteous and holy life will enter into the kingdom of God. They will be shut out. They will come saying, Lord, Lord, 
Didn't we do all of these things? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons? Didn't we perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. This is a very sober truth. We come to the book of Romans again today, and we'll review just a a little bit. Romans, of course, opens with a very clear statement that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Can I tell you, Paul would have been very ashamed of the gospel if it did not produce real righteousness in a man's life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Now, many of the false prophets come teaching that this faith means that they are covered by the blood of Jesus, but they're not changed. They're not transformed. They continue to walk in wickedness. Paul would have been ashamed of that kind of gospel. Is it written, the righteous will live by faith? So whatever is going to happen in a person's life today for salvation will not be by law. It will be by an intimate connection with Jesus Christ in faith that will totally transform that person's life and remove all sin by the blood of Jesus. Now he begins a discussion of the wrath of God having been revealed from heaven And through that entire rest of the first chapter, he speaks about the wrath of God. And then chapter 2, as we've already spoken, he speaks about the wrath of God coming upon the Jewish people because of their wickedness. And then in chapter 3, he again speaks about the wrath of God coming upon the pagan, the Gentile. And he says, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Now, may I say this? I'm going to show you in the book of Romans that while we all come under the curse of sin, if we remain in the curse of sin, we will be hellbound. There must be a total transformation of our lives. We must be made righteous in reality. We must be made new in reality. Now, verse 23, For all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified freely by his grace. Now the problem we're going to be faced with through this book of Romans is that the translators did not give the true meaning of the Greek. Instead, they freighted the words with new meanings based on John Calvin, Martin Luther, and other reformers. This is a great mistake, and we have to go back, and we have to say, what literally does that word mean? This word justified is an old English word, and it means to be made righteous. It is not a legal forensic word as the modern church has tried to interpret it. It is being made righteous. It is a word of great redemption. It's a word of, yes, our past sins have been forgiven, but we've not been left with just sins forgiven. You see, if if you do something that offends me, and I forgive you. What has happened? Only I've changed my position toward you. You haven't been touched. You haven't been changed. So if your sins are just forgiven in the legal classical sense, you have been left without regeneration. You've been left unchanged. You've been left without the transforming power of God moving in your life to restore and rebuild and make you into something new. That's not what the Bible teaches. The word to forgive in the New Testament is the word aphemy in the Greek, and it means literally to remove, to remove. So, I have these post-its sitting on my desk. The post-its are sitting on the desk. If I affamy these post-its, I have removed them from the desk and they're no longer there. If Jesus affamies your sin, he removes that sin from your life. It's no longer there. He's healed you. He's set you free. Now, please, if you were to ask me, what is the one thing the Bible is about? I would answer, the Bible is about sin. But it's not just about sin. It's about the removal of sin. It's about taking the precious descendants of Adam and Eve. And in each generation, seeking those who will give themselves utterly and completely into the hands of Almighty God. Because his purpose is to utterly destroy the work of the devil in your life, 
First John, the third chapter, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Well, what is the work of the devil? The work of the devil is to tempt you, to cause you to walk in unrighteousness, to cause you to sin. If you believe you can never stop sinning, I'm telling you now very plainly, you can never be saved. Because a man or a woman who continues to walk in sin has not been born of God. The seed of God does not remain in them. So when we come now to this fourth chapter, and this is a place of great deception in the modern church, and there are words that we have to begin to understand Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? In what matter? In this matter of entering by faith into a relationship with the Lord God of heaven. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That word believed is crucial. In the English language, we usually mean when we say, I believe that, we mean we have given mental assent to it, and we agree that it is correct. That's not true in the Hebrew. It's not true in the Greek. When it says Abraham believed God, it means Abraham gave himself utterly and completely into the hands of God. He entrusted himself to God. He was committed to God. And that was then reflected in how he behaved and what he did. We have really messed up today by disconnecting what a man says and what a man does. God believes what a man does, not what he says. It's easy to say something. It means something totally different when I act on what I've said. Abraham believed God. That is, Abraham entrusted himself. He committed himself. He gave himself into the hands of God. I'll show you that in just a moment. And it was credited to him as righteousness or innocence. Well, what does that word credited mean? Well, first, it's a term of arithmetic. It's a very precise inventorying. Two plus two equals four, always. If I say to you, two plus two equals eight, you're going to say, no, pastor, go back to your arithmetic and study it. 
Abraham put his faith and belief and trust in God, and his behavior was then inventoried, and it was recognized that he was righteous. Now, when a man works, his wages are credited to him as a gift. When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. But this is not devoid of activity. I want to share with you. In the book of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram. Go forth from your country. And from your relatives. And from your father's house. To the, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I'll make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Now, if Abraham had not gone forth as the Lord instructed him, would he have been reckoned or accounted as righteous? Absolutely no. If he had stayed in in Haran and had refused to go on to the promised land, to Canaan, would he have been accounted as righteous? No. It was his quick walking in trusting himself into the hands of Almighty God and doing what God told him to do. That was what was counted as righteousness. It wasn't by works. It was by a faith relationship with Almighty God where he simply did what God told him to do. Now, he gets to the promised land, and there's a famine there. This is so like God. He'll tell us to do something, and we do it. And then there's a famine. And it's a test. Will he now turn to the Lord God of heaven? Or will he journey to Egypt. Many of us have taken that journey to Egypt, and it's been catastrophic for us because we didn't know how we could survive where we were. So he goes, his wife is barren, and so he believes his wife does not have equal value to his life. 
And so he says, say that you're my sister, which he was, she was half sister. He was half brother. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. And so the Egyptian people saw that Sarai was beautiful and they told Pharaoh and Pharaoh took her as his wife. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with a great plague because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? And Pharaoh kicked him out of Egypt. Now, I'm sharing this with you because I don't want you to have the idea that that Abram was fully mature just because he obeyed God and went to the promised land. No, he was still very immature, and he still made desperate mistakes, and God had to rebuke him and shame him. So Abram went up out of Egypt. He still had Lot with him. The Lord had told him to leave his family behind, but he had not done that. So finally, God has to bring about a situation where there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. And Abram's answer was, okay, let's separate. And Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan. And Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. It was then, in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. We need to quickly come into obedience to Jesus. And we can come into that obedience by the power of the blood of Jesus. Now, Abram is promised a son. Verse 5, And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, Count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord. And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, I'm wanting you to see that step by step, God trains Abram to walk clean before him and to trust him. And in every instance, Abram obeyed. Except with this matter of Hagar. And there, he took Sarai's advice, and he walked in the flesh. And he brought tragedy to his family and great sorrow to his wife. 
When a man refuses to stand in righteousness with his wife, he will cause her great sorrow of heart, great anguish. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, that is after the Sarah Hagar incident, for 13 years, God was silent and did not speak to his servant. But finally, God speaks once more and he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. In other words, walk before me and do not sin. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God continues talking with him and says, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son with your wife, Sarah. Verse 21, I I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will will bear to you at this season next year. And he was told that he should circumcise himself and all the men in his family. Why? It's the sign that man has no power to create outside of God. Everything created by man outside of God will be burned in the end time. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. He looked up and he saw the three men standing there. It's one of the sweetest stories in all of the Bible. He announces that Sarah again will have a baby. Sarah laughs. Abraham is laughing. If you read this whole story of Abraham, you come to chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Why would God need to test Abraham? He had to, for once and for all, determine whether or not Abraham would obey him. Now, please, I want you to understand that God walks through our whole life with us. And he wants to know, will you obey me? Salvation is not by works. Salvation is by faith, by entrusting ourselves into the hands of God, not into our job, not into our family. It is entrusting our lives into the hand of God. Take your son. 
your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two... Off he goes to do what God told him to do, even though it was a horrible thing God told him to do. Do you understand? In case you're questioning whether I'm right or not, I'm going to read for you a passage out of the book of James. James, the second chapter, verse 14. What is the benefit, my brethren, if anyone may claim to have faith but have not works? The faith is not able to save him, is it? Now, let's be straight. Pastor James is saying, look, if you say you love Jesus, but you continue to walk in your sin, and you say, I have faith in Jesus to believe that I'm covered by his blood, and that when Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees himself. Pastor James is saying to you, that kind of faith is not able to save you. You see why I opened this broadcast today by saying, look, we've got to be so careful. Will you meet me in the morning on that judgment day? Or will you be cast out? Because you never spent your time or your energy building that relationship with Jesus, and you have not obeyed him. You have believed lies. And time after time, he's tested you, and you have failed the test. You have not obeyed and done what he told you to do. You have gone after your own desires. You have gone after your own entertainment. You have spent hours and hours and hours in front of the television, in front of the computer screen. You have spent hours in your entertainment. You have not allowed Jesus to test you. And you've just said, I'm saved. No, you're not. You're lost. If you're walking in any known rebellion against the almighty God of heaven, if you're filling your heart with the wickedness of this world, you can believe with all of your heart, I'm saved. But in fact, your faith will not save you. Can I be very blunt? The American definition of faith will not bring you into the heavenly courts above. It will instead take you to the fire below. Verse 15, Then if a brother or sister may be naked, and may be lacking daily food, and anyone from among you may say to them, You depart in peace, warm yourselves, be fed. But if you may not give them the necessities of the body, what is the benefit? Oh, 
I was driving this past week and I passed a disabled homeless woman that I have known of for some time. And it was cold out and she was begging. And so I took a sum of money out of my billfold. And as she came past me, I gave it to her. And I said to her, stay warm. And she said, thank you. I have a tent and I have a a heater. And I have a warm sleeping bag and I'm staying warm. Now I can eat too. And now I can buy more propane. My heart broke because I would much rather have had her come and sit in my car and say, how can I help you get into a, into an apartment? How can I help you get back on your feet? But I didn't have the resources to do that. I gave her what I had. But what if I rolled my window down and said to her, stay warm and given her nothing? What would you have thought? Pastor James continues, And so the faith, if it may not have works, it is dead by itself. In other words, if you do not demonstrate your faith and relationship to Jesus Christ in the way you walk, in where you go, in how you spend your time and your money and your energy, if that is not in righteousness, you cannot be saved. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. You show me your faith apart from works, and I'll show you my faith by means of my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble with fear. But are you willing to know, O foolish man, that the faith apart from works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by means of works, having offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? You see that faith was working together with his works, and by means of works faith was completed. And the scripture was fulfilled, the one saying, And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There is no accounting Righteousness to your life separate from what you do. Now, you're not saved by what you do. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and putting our faith in him and then acting accordingly and allowing a total regeneration of our life, a total reforming of our life, a total making over of our life so that we don't walk in any known rebellion against God, but more than that, so that we have utterly put our trust in him and we earnestly seek him with all of our hearts. We don't turn aside to wickedness. We turn to righteousness, and God makes us righteous. 
He was called a friend of God. So then you must see that a man is made righteous by means of works and not by means of faith only. And likewise was not Rahab the harlot justified by means of works, having received the messengers and then having sent them out by a different way? For just as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also the faith apart from the works is dead. That's James, the second chapter, beginning in verse 14. Now, when we come to this fourth chapter in the book of Romans, it is very difficult to understand because it has been twisted by the modern teachers to say what Paul does not mean it to say. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. We should read that. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who makes him righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. Verse 13, or verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised. Verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. This is real righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath and where there is no law, there's no transgression. But there is still death. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. He is the father of us all. Now, this verse gives me great courage. Verse 17, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our Father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. You will have to face the fact that your body is as good as dead. You're going to have to face that place. We'll speak later in the sixth chapter about this crucifixion business. 
Most of us try to enter into salvation without death, without dying to ourselves or our ideas, and we take the cheap, easy way out. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Yet he did not waver, verse 20, through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he'd promised. This is why it was accounted to him, credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. How will God credit righteousness to you? By dying to self, by stepping forward boldly, stepping forward boldly by faith and renouncing every sinful passion of your heart, every wicked thing in your mind and giving yourself utterly, completely and totally to Jesus not giving yourself to the television, not giving yourself to the wickedness of our age, giving yourself unto Jesus. If you're going to be saved, it's going to take every ounce of energy that you could possibly have to search after Jesus. Many of you need to go in the prayer closet and you need to stay there on your face until you have dealt with the sin of your heart, until you are utterly broken. Many of you need to ask Jesus to show you who you are in his sight, what your true condition is before a holy and righteous God because you have believed a false theology. And you've been comfortable in it. And you've been lukewarm. And the Lord says you're wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked and don't even know it. Do you know what your real condition is before a holy and righteous God? What will you do in the end if you're not saved? Face it honestly. Will you? Will you meet in the morning with Jesus Christ and with his saints? Or will you be cast out? Don't just assume that you're on your way. Don't just assume that everything's okay. Get clean and clear with Jesus. And recognize you've got to get right with Jesus. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. We're going to continue in the fifth chapter tomorrow.
I want you to be made righteous and made holy. And I want a fellowship with those of you who have been made righteous and made holy. And some of you are struggling. Some of you are uncertain. Some of you know you're living in sin and you're not sure that's not okay. It's not. My brother, my sister, it's time to get right with Jesus. It's time to get yourself fixed up with him for eternity. And to lay aside everything of the world, the flesh, and the devil. God bless you, my brother and my sister. I love you. I trust what Jesus is doing in your heart. I'll talk to you soon. Oh,